0: G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber and I'm TJ Stedman, and you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia.
1: Hey Chris, look up in the sky. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, no, no. It's bisexual Superman.
0: Oh, boy. Yeah, this is uh, one that I've been waiting for, Tim, because, as you know, Superman uh, is my favourite character. I, I have loved Superman for a very, very long time. But, yes, we are back for another episode, and I am excited.
1: Would you say you're uh, super excited?
0: No, no, I wouldn't.
1: Um, okay, so, yeah, <laughs> anyway, I, I thought this was a good time to bring up the Man of Steel as we prepare to discuss the Man of Dirt in Genesis Chapter 2. Um so yeah i mean you're a massive fan so i thought well this is perfect right i mean you've even got a superman tattoo tell us about that
0: indeed i do as does john bon jovi and shaquille O'Neal. so there you go hey. bit of trivia um yeah know... he's a giant
1: too seven foot one like he's bigger than goliath according to the dead sea scrolls there you go oh
0: nice nice uh nice link back to the scripture um jerry seinfeld is a big superman fan oh, yeah? nick nick yep. cage is a big superman fan as are many, many others. But, yes, I have loved Superman, um, I think, since I was a little kid. So Superman the movie starring Christopher Reeve is my favourite film of all time.
1: It's a great movie. I believe
0: it is, yeah. And I think it's the first film I ever watched when I was, like, two years old or something. So I've been collecting comics uh, for a long, long time as well. Um, So my love of Superman and associated characters continues to this day.
1: Awesome. I've always thought Superman was... uh... Pretty radical, and I think, like, when I was quite young, my, my cousin had a bunch of comics, which I got hold of. I think one of them was a Superman comic. You know, this was a very long time ago. I have hazy memories, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, Superman and, and, and Batman as well, like, were um were favourites of mine. Uh, although I've got to say I was probably more into, like, the uh, cartoons on TV, you know, Transformers, yes. that kind of thing. Probably oh, Probably yes. more, I think.
0: Yes, the eighties. What a golden era it was.
1: Yeah, yeah. But I mean, Superman's a legend. Like, what? One of the oldest guys in the in the business, right? He's been around uh, something like eighty years.
0: Yes, yes. And that's one of the things. Despite you know, not just the character, but just the the concept of these you know American mythology: Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and all these characters. They have been around for a long time, and long after you and I are in the grave, there will be around as well you know your kids and grandkids will still be discussing and enjoying superman so yeah i mean he has a very interesting origin and i mean the actual world based origin not the kryptonian coming to earth origin you know Uh, um, (laughs) the story of
1: how superman came to be
0: yes yes and there are some fascinating documentaries and books about that but yeah i mean you you could there could be a claim made that he is the the world's first superhero, um, and what we've come to know, colourful costumes, secret identity, arch-nemesis, all that kind of stuff. Um, But, yeah, it was was a very interesting time in the 30s, you know, quite fascinating. But a lot of people probably don't know that um, preceding Superman was uh, Doc Savage, uh, otherwise known as the Man of Bronze. Obviously, Superman's known as the Man of Steel He was created in 1933, and there's a lot of similarities. So Doc Savage is known as Clark Savage, jr another clerk he also yep. has a fortress of solitude oh, so right. all of these characters kind of you know homage or you know perhaps rip off or inspired by other you know batman is very much inspired by the shadow who preceded him um mm. but yeah fascinating fascinating character
1: so we didn't actually get superman in a published comic till like 1938 right but what I find really fascinating about the origins of Superman is, like, back in 1933, when the idea was first conceived, the Superman, as he was called, was actually a bad guy. I mean, not only was he a bad guy, he was a bald-headed super genius with, like, psychic powers. And in that, guys, he actually had more in common with the supervillain who was introduced years later as his arch nemesis, Lex Luthor. It took Superman's creators, Siegel and Shuster a number of years to redefine and develop the Superman concept until they had something marketable. Because what they didn't realise at first was that people don't necessarily want to follow the bad guy. What people wanted in this time was a champion that they could aspire to, someone they wanted to be like, someone who modelled American ideals and old-fashioned values. It took almost 80 years, but we're now at the stage where writers for Superman have broken traditional and biological gender boundaries for Superman And this month, they've released a comic that shows Superman coming out as bisexual. Well, to be accurate, this is the son of the original Superman, a.k.a. John Kent in Superman, Son of Kal-El, issue number five. And to be honest, as a Christian, it kind of saddens me a little to see this kind of breaking down of the role models that our culture was built on. I mean, we're all about Jesus Christ here, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not trying to equate Superman with Jesus. But for our culture, as long as Superman's been around, we've had a model of high moral values, strong ethics, and of course remarkable abilities, and it seems to me like maybe that's under attack now. I don't know. Superman these days seems to be all about truth, justice, and building back better. You might recall from last season on the podcast that I've mentioned something about ideals. Human beings are unique in their ability to recognise and strive for ideals, so it's a big deal to see those ideals crumble, even if those aspirations are misplaced in a comic book superhero. People can't diminish God, but they can break down those who we thought were God-like. And that's kind of what I think is going on today. As an extension of that, what I think we're witnessing is the dehumanisation of our species. And I don't say that just because of the current issue of Superman. We've been witnessing this for generations. And the rate at which we're seeing the dehumanisation of the species coming through, from Hollywood in particular, is accelerating. And the comics in particular play a massive role in moving the cultural psyche forward in that direction. Particularly since the release of the Marvel Cinematic Universe in recent years, we've seen an explosion of ideas that stretch the definition of humanity, and in some cases do away with it entirely. And DC seem to be trying to overcompensate with their dark and gritty reimaginings of their own characters. But Superman rose up, up and away from obscurity to greatness as his character evolved, and now we're seeing the first signs of decline, in my opinion. We're about to witness another rise to greatness in the biblical text, albeit short-lived. And you'll see as we go through the text, it comes with a healthy dose of down-to-earth reality to ensure that we don't misplace our aspirations, like the culture that surrounds us. We're going to find that in this respect, the ancient world was not so different from us.
0: Okay, so what are we reading today?
1: Well, our text for today comes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And I've got it here from the ESV. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And it's a bit of a shame that I'm not better at speaking Hebrew because I'd like to have all my listeners actually hear it in the original language. It's a beautiful verse and it's really only when you hear it that the profound messaging of the author comes out, which is exactly what we do here on this show. We're all about the intent of the author. We want you to hear the words of scripture as delivered to its first audience. So I'm actually going to have a go. For those of you who are familiar with Hebrew, you'll have to excuse me while I whip this out. That was probably terrible. Uh, Anyway, we're going to work through that verse systematically. (laughs) Thanks. And really pull this text apart to get an idea of what the author is trying to tell us. By the way, I think with that attempt at Hebrew, my butchering of the language is probably more powerful than a locomotive. But I tried. And to set the scene, the first thing we need to be aware of is that the author has already given us the timestamp. As we went through the previous verses, we learned that this story takes place in the time when the fall of man has not yet occurred. God has not rained down his judgment upon the earth, and mankind is not yet engaged in agriculture as a way of life. Everything is very good, and as we talked about last time and have been talking about since last season, mankind as a species already exists in this setting. What we're witnessing here is the creation of a particular man. We begin with a verb suggestive of craftsmanship that indicates the personal involvement of the Lord God in the creation of this man. Again, we have the use of the personal name of God, which tells us that he is dealing with a particular individual with whom he is establishing relationship. In Genesis 1, God created mankind, but this story is about one particular individual. He is the man, or could say the human. As we continue through the early chapters of the primeval history, we will see various applications of this phrase, the man. And we'll learn as we go that the man can mean a great many things, but at no point do we find ourselves unable to relate to this man. And that's why it's particularly important to remember that the man doesn't have a name. This is not Adam yet. He gets his name later, but for now, we're not supposed to know that he has a name. That would be leaping entire contexts in a single bound. He's only the man because if he is Adam, the man named Adam then ceases to be relatable to you and I. If he is Adam, then Adam is all he can be. I'm not Adam, neither are you. If he is the man, we can all learn from him. Besides, we find the text using the definite article as a proposition. It's the man. We don't use names like that. We don't say the Tim or the Chris. Nobody talks like that. Well, maybe the Hoff. But Hebrew is the same. They don't do that with names. Let's see what we can learn as we witness this special creation. This language of forming the man can be confusing because we see that the text tells us that the man is formed and it would appear that he's formed from dust. Now, anyone who's handled dust before knows that dust does not stay formed very long, but there are an abundance of scripture references to mankind being formed from clay. And as a matter of fact, there are also a number of ancient Near Eastern parallels in the wider world of the time that illustrate the same picture.
0: Okay, so could you give us some examples of that?
1: sure so in isaiah 29 verse 16 you turn things upside down shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker he did not make me or the thing formed say of him who formed it he has no understanding and again in isaiah in chapter 45 verse 9 woe to him who strives with him who formed him a pot among earthen pots Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? And in Isaiah 64, verse 8, this is very popular with Isaiah, isn't it? But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. And outside of scripture, we can look at an excerpt from an ancient Sumerian story. It's called Enki and Ninmar. And I'll just give you a little snippet. And after Enki, the fashioner of designs by himself, had pondered the matter, he said to his mother, Nama, My mother, the creature you planned, will really come into existence. Impose on him the work of carrying baskets. You should need clay from the top of the Abzu. The birth goddesses will nip off the clay, and you shall bring the form into existence. So, just to put that one in context, this is one telling of the origin of man, and the clay from the top of the Abzu, if you are not familiar with that term, Abzu, you might be more familiar with the Greek abyss. So we're talking about what in the biblical worldview is uh, a bad place. And uh, Enki, whose name means Lord of the Earth, that might uh, tweak your ears if you're familiar with Paul's use of that expression. Uh, creates man from clay that comes from this uh, bad place, the realm of the dead. Uh, Moving on to Job, let's have some more scripture. Chapter 33, verse 6. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Well, there you go. You've got the same language uh, from the scripture, but of course it's coming from a totally different perspective. And in Lamentations, Four verse two, the precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Uh, back to Job and chapter ten, verse nine, remember that you have made me like clay, and will you return me to the dust? So there's a good one there because we've got clay and dust in parallel. Now we'll have a look at another Mesopotamian piece. This is 18th century BC, Akkadian, and the Epic of Atrahasis. Create primeval man that he may bear the yoke. Let him bear the yoke, the work of Elil. Let man bear the load of the gods. Nintu made her voice heard and spoke to the great gods. It is not proper for me to make him. The work is Enki's. He makes everything pure. If he gives me clay, then I will do it. Enki made his voice heard and spoke to the great gods. On the 1st, 7th, and 15th of the month I shall make a purification by washing. Then one god should be slaughtered, and the gods can be purified by immersion. Nintu shall mix clay with his flesh and his blood. Then a god and a man will be mixed together in clay. Let us hear the drum beat forever after. Let a ghost come into existence from the god's flesh. Let her proclaim it as his living sign, and let the ghost exist, so as not to forget the slain god. They answered yes in the assembly, the great Anunnaki, who assigned the fates. Alright, so there's a lot of interesting material in that one. Uh, incidentally, you might have picked up on the name Elil, which we've talked about before, uh, which you will find Hebraized if you like, in Isaiah 14 uh, as Helel Ben-Shakar. Obviously, we've got the Anunnaki mentioned in there. That's another interesting one. So we've got what would be the equivalent to the sons of God in the biblical text and once again, of course, this was uh, Enki and Nintu, who's pretty much the equivalent of Ninma, as we were reading in that last uh, Sumerian text. So these things go through a, a, a gradual evolution, but we've still got basically uh, the scriptural bad guys here in these Mesopotamian texts. And very disturbing stuff to see what they're doing, blending gods and men, letting them loose on the earth. Uh, there's talk about ghosts and yeah, all kinds of uh, spirits, and yeah, it's all very uh, very strange, but it's it, it won't be strange to you if you've been reading Answers to Giant Questions, because that's the kind of stuff that we tackle in there and talk about the worldview behind it. How we should be reading that as christians i've uh, got a few more examples another one from job chapter 4 verse 19 how much more those who dwell in houses of clay whose foundation is in the dust who are like the moth that's actually um, a pretty dark one because in that passage those words are spoken by a demon which holds job's friend in a state of sleep paralysis and terrifies him with these words basically talking about his mortality and how he's not going to live long uh, we've got more in the new testament so we get a romans 9 verse 21 has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use And in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And, of course, the jars of clay are our bodies.
0: I love that uh, last passage because it's uh, it's so profound and it also reminds me of jars of clay, one of my favourite bands. And uh, there's quite a lot of verses there. You know, I didn't realise that the the use of imagery was so um, widespread.
1: You could say there was a flood
0: of it. Nice jazz of clay reference,
1: yes. Yeah, <laughs> there are some arguments against this idea of clay because the text doesn't say clay. The first argument says, well, clay is a mixture of dust and water, so it can't be clay because it just says dust. Well, that's true. However, verse 6 told us that the whole surface of the ground was well watered so where are you going to get that dry dust from are we so incapable of comprehension that we can't bring the idea of water in one verse and dust in the next into a single coherent mental picture but this audience should know by now that in a functionally oriented worldview material creation couldn't be further from the author's mind it's not really dust and it's not really clay so say it with me folks this isn't material creation The second objection is that the reference to dust is a reference to mortality, and that's an interesting concept. It's well worth our consideration, but I'm going to show why I think that there are good reasons to consider dust another way, and that's going to help us see why the author went with dust instead of clay. First, let's have a look at some of those examples where biblical authors talk about dust in connection with death. I know we're going through a lot of scripture tonight but it's well worth it because it grounds you in the biblical worldview so genesis 3 verse 19 by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return and we're back in the book of job chapter 17 verse 16 will it go down to the bars of sheol shall we descend together into the dust job 21 26 they lie down alike in the dust and the worms cover them. Job 34:15. all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Job 40, verse 13, hide them all in the dust together, bind their faces in the world below. And in the Psalms 22:15, my strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Psalms 30, verse 9, what profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? And in Isaiah twenty-six nineteen, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. In Daniel 12, verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Hallelujah. And in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 20, all go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. See, dust is talked about in the context of death because death is part of the common experience of every ordinary human. We live, we die, we go back to the dust. It's unavoidable. You can't escape it. One day, your mortal body will perish and it will turn to dust just like everybody else's. And that's the key thought. They're just like everybody else death is part of the common experience of every man like the old saying goes there are only two things certain in life death and taxes never mind the taxes but certainly death is part of the common experience and in the ancient world you were not shielded from its reality
0: but they still talked about dust in the ordinary sense as we know right like talking about
1: dirt yeah yeah, of course Uh, it's the middle east you can't escape dust it's everywhere Not every reference to dust is going to be some kind of cryptic message or metaphor for something. But you'll notice that most of the texts that these images are found in are the poetic, prophetic and wisdom texts. In fact, it's the very proliferation of dust in the Middle East that makes it the perfect visual image to convey the idea of vast multitudes. I mentioned before that the word Adam only appears with the definite article in this text, which means that it's the man. But when we look at dust, there are no... Prepositions, none whatsoever. It simply says, Formed Yahweh Elohim, the man, dust of the earth. That's a really important observation because it tells us something. The man isn't formed from dust of the earth. Adam is dust of the earth. Or should I say, Adam is dust of the earth. So, what do we do with that? I would suggest that there are some situations in which dust is talked about in Scripture that we should be paying attention to. Here are some examples. Let's see if you can pick up on the point being made by the author. Genesis 13 verse 16. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Genesis twenty eight fourteen: Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Exodus 8.16 Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. 2 Chronicles 1, 9, O Lord God, let your word to David my father be now fulfilled, for you have made me a king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. In Psalm 78 verse 27 He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. Psalm 103, verse 14, For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. And Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7, And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Zechariah 9, verse 3, Tyre has built herself a rampart, and heaped up silver like dust, and fine gold like the mud of the streets. So when biblical authors talk about dust, often what they mean is a vast multitude, too many to count, a huge population, an immense congregation of people in which not one is distinct from another. They're all the same. The dust of the earth is the common man. He's Mr. Nobody. He's Mr. Ordinary. He's Mr. Average. Or as Gene Wilder put it, the common clay of the Old West. You know, morons. Sorry, I can't resist that opportunity to quote from blazing saddles there's nothing remarkable about the man he's not special he's not well dressed he's not rich he's not powerful he's not extraordinary he's certainly not super he's just another speck of dust in the hand of the potter sorry joel Osteen. so when the text tells us about the adam from the Adama, we are being told that this man is just one among a vast innumerable multitude that god has chosen and that's good for you because it means that you don't have to be special to be chosen either This language of being chosen is connected to being formed. As you can see, if you take the time to read Isaiah in chapters 42 and 43 in particular, you'll find the ideas of being formed and chosen in parallel. As an example, here's Isaiah 43, 1. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine.
0: Yeah, I love that verse. It's really quite beautiful. And so personal.
1: There's a lot of love in that verse.
0: Oh, it sounds like you're going to break into song. Don't let me stop <laughs> uh,
1: you. Yeah, don't tempt me. All right. <laughs> and then, getting back to our text, then God breathed. This is the kind of breath that you use to kindle fire, to fan it into flame. In fact, the author uses it to put the man in his place, to remind him to his indignation that he is insignificant before God because This word is also used to provoke a man by belittling him, by pulling him down a peg or two, to raise his eye out, to make his nose red and his nostrils flare. This is a provocation that ignites the flame of the spirit within the man. This breath is the impartation of the spirit of God within the image of God. And it's a reminder that we can't do this on our own. As we've already heard and are going to hear again later, you are but dust. I think it's important for us to remember that although the text of Genesis 1 speaks of the earth in functional terms, it would be foolish of us to assume that the object of that functionality is mankind. This is God's temple, and we, like everything else in it, are there to function for his purposes, not our own. The imagery used here is representative of the mouth-opening ritual that a priest performs in order to impart the spirit of a god into an idol. This was common practice in the ancient Near East and well understood by a Hebrew audience. We've got to understand that it didn't carry a negative connotation to them in the way that it might seem to us. All this talk about idols made of clay and priests animating gods within these man made representations. This is God imparting his spirit to humankind. So that's why the particular language about breathing into the nostrils is important. It plays a vital part in conveying that mental image in the text. So, why do we have idols in the text? Well, As I just mentioned, this is about temple. You don't have a temple without idols because idols are the representation of the God being honoured and served in the temple. God makes us to be his representatives, and we function in that capacity within the cosmos that he designed for his glory.
0: So does that mean that the breath of life is the Holy Spirit or isn't?
1: Yes. The answer is yes. So firstly, yes, I do think that the Holy Spirit was imparted to the man because this is the essential function of the mouth-opening ritual that God is performing upon the man. The ritual means nothing if the Spirit of God is not imparted. So I think that much is definitely secure, even though the text does not use the word for spirit. The concept of breath is often tied with spirit, and in this case where the author has more than one meaning to convey in the text, it will suffice. But on a different level, we also need to account for the spirit of the man because the Scripture tells us that it is God that gives man his spirit. And you might have picked that up in some of the verses we were reading earlier. So if we can take the concept of de novo creation and strip away the material aspect, which was of no concern to the Hebrew audience anyway, then we've managed to salvage that doctrine for those that consider it to be important. We can still say that the spirit of man within the man himself is a special creation of God. As Zechariah 12.1 says, The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Getting back to the earlier point about the image of God receiving the breath, the last part of the phrase and the man became a living being really exemplifies what I'm talking about here. A living being simply means that he is now being God's body because he is the physical vehicle through which God's spirit moves. We see the same terminology when we speak about the church. As the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ when by his spirit we do the works of Christ. So the point being made here is that unlike the idols of other gods that cannot move or speak or hear, we have been enabled to act and to do God's work in order that God may work through us. What does this mean then for the man? It means that he, like the original Superman, has risen out of obscurity. He is no longer an insignificant speck of dust. He is chosen by God for a purpose, and he has been made far greater than the sum of his parts or the place of his origin you are not a meaningless speck of stardust in an unremarkable corner of the galaxy you were chosen by god and he knows you by name any joel osteen fans still listening out there that should make you feel better but it might have been a bit of a blow for some listeners to hear that this creation event was not what the scholars call a de novo creation in the material sense the idea that this man in genesis 2 may not have necessarily been the first human to ever live or may not have been actually made of dirt, might be a bit shocking, but I should point out that we can't say he wasn't either, so it's not exactly kryptonite to that idea. Recent research into human origins has shown that because the number of ancestors doubles each time you go back another generation into the past, the chance of a distant ancestor being genealogically related to everyone alive today goes up the further you go back. So even if you believe that humans have been around only 6,000 years, that's easily long enough in time to have someone alive then who's related genealogically to everyone alive even 3,000 years ago, and certainly to everyone alive today. In other words, the man in Genesis 1 to 5, whoever he was, is most certainly our common ancestor. Whether he existed 6 or 60,000 years ago, it doesn't matter. There is certainly nobody alive today, neither has there been for several thousand years. That not related by genealogy to the scriptural first man but this is important because we need to understand how he relates to us the man is representative of all of us genealogically speaking we all descend from him and that means that whatever he does we also do because we learn from our parents I know I've talked about this before, but for those who came in late, the notion of some kind of genetically inherited sin is ridiculous. It only takes about 10 generations before the DNA of your ancestors is reduced to about 1% that you carry yourself. That's only 10 generations. Today, we're potentially hundreds, if not thousands of generations away from the first man. I'm just going to be blunt about it. You don't have any of Adam's DNA. You're not carrying his genetic code. You don't have DNA in there that makes you do bad things, and there's no sin nature hiding in the code within your genome. It's the same reason, and again, I've talked about this before, why you can't be related to the Nephilim genetically. As you know, I'm not anti-science. I'm not anti-intellectual. It's just a plain fact that actually derives from real science, and it aligns perfectly with the teaching of the biblical authors. You're a sinner because your parents were sinners. You're a sinner because you live in a sinful culture. You're a sinner because you choose to sin. It's what you've been taught by everybody you know. It's passed down to you culturally, and that's why genealogies work to connect the first man to Christ, but they don't work to connect Christ to you. That's why there are no more genealogies after Jesus. The only way to join the family of God is by adoption. In light of what Christ has achieved by his resurrection, the Apostle Paul talks about the first man, about the common experience of us all in death, about the dust of the earth and our own resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. From verse 42, So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. That's the end of the chapter. Now I want to talk to you about something else that I found quite interesting as I was reading through this text. It's not immediately apparent when you read Genesis 2, but after reading a bit more scripture in its, in its original language, you start to see connections. I'm talking about the fact that the man, Ha-Adam, is made of dust from the ground, Adamah, and the fact that both of those terms have at their root, dam, which means red, and is used to refer to blood. Genesis 2 makes no mention of blood, and yet other creation stories, particularly from the ancient Sumerians, make frequent mention of the notion that blood was involved in the formation of the man. Now, if I were suggesting that the biblical account is no different to these other creation texts, I might suggest that the absence of the mention of blood doesn't mean it isn't being hinted at here in the terms Adam and Adamah. And to be fair, the biblical account does in many cases sound like these other ancient Near Eastern texts, because it is an ancient Near Eastern text, and it's a product of that same culture. But where the Sumerian literature has the death of a god required to bring the man to life, the biblical text shows a god who gives of his own abundant life. And also, when we consider the use of the term Adamah and its correlating term Afar, the dust, we understand that the nature of the dust is that it is so commonplace The fact that blood is referred to as redness, the same colour as the dust, says nothing of the origin of the redness, but it says everything about the common nature of mankind, the man of dust. Incidentally, we find the same root behind the word Edom, which is, of course, the land outside the Holy Land and sometimes used in a generic sense to refer to all of the nations, i.e. mankind in general. So again, we have the concept of the common nature of man in relation to the dust. And it's especially poignant that it is the dust outside the garden because we must not lose sight of the fact that man was not born in sacred space. He didn't come from a special place or a special family. He came from the same land where everyone else is from, and he represents all of us.
0: All right. Thank you very much, Jim. We'll wrap it up there because it is now time for another Giant Warfare segment. But before we go there, what have we got for next week?
1: Ooh, next week is going to be a good one because we will commence our quest for the biblical Garden of Eden. And I don't think we're going to get there in a single episode, so we might have to break that up into parts. And we've got some other cool stuff coming up as well later in the season. We've got some interviews happening. We're going to dive a bit more into the world of the comic books. We're going to explore some very interesting supernatural themes that come through here in Genesis 2. For now, though, as you mentioned, Chris, it's time for Giant Warfare. Giant Warfare. Giant Warfare. warfare.
0: Tim, so what are we going to be exploring today what cosmic battles 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 are we preparing to fight
1: today i want to talk about a battle of a different kind and it actually takes place largely online i've been digging into some of the darker corners of the web and came across some very interesting stuff thanks to my good friend tyler fowler you can hear him on the complete sinner's guide podcast uh for contacting me personally and bringing this topic to my attention. Incidentally, you'll hear me on that podcast shortly as well with a, a guest appearance that's coming up. Did you ever see that movie from 1997 called The Game? It had Michael Douglas in it. Imagine that, except it's happening in your real life, not just a movie, and it's full of Satanists. Now, it begins with a few simple words, not not the movie, the uh, this phenomenon that we're talking about here. It begins with these words, I intend to bring forth heaven on earth for the benefit of all and to release us all from bondage. Now, if you've heard words like these before, chances are you've been spending far too much time on YouTube. And you've probably come across what is referred to as the blood over intent ritual. An oath or sigil as it's called in witchcraft usually similar to that one is written on paper smeared with the dripping blood of the person making the vow and recorded on video as evidence of having completed this satanic ritual video recordings of the blood over intent ritual have been popping up on youtube since 2013 and there are literally thousands of them the followers of this strange practice have acquired a cult-like status despite the lack of any kind of official organization okay so maybe we should take this back to the start Back in 2007, a guy known only as Frank, which may or may not be a real name, posted a London-based job vacancy advertisement online related to a magazine called The False Prophet, which served as a rabbit hole or entry point for an alternate reality game, or ARG for short, designed to promote a real satanic cult. For those who don't know... An alternate reality game, or ARG, is a kind of mystery-solving game with riddles and cryptic puzzles which is based online but also played out in the real world. Participants who unwittingly find themselves in the game by following a rabbit hole online try to solve mysteries by finding clues embedded all over the internet and also in real space and time involving real people who function as part of the game's interactive structure. What makes an ARG intriguing is that the culture that has developed around ARGs is to never acknowledge that it is a game, even denying the fact, which means that for those on the outside looking in, you may never actually realise that what you were looking at online is an element in an ARG and not genuine reality as we know it. This particular ARG on the pretext of a job vacancy requiring people to contribute artwork and articles for inclusion in the false prophet magazine was actually an experiment in recruitment for a satanic cult. Contributors were encouraged to participate in all kinds of bizarre sadomasochistic activities in search of supposedly mystical books that didn't actually exist in order to receive clues that would help them to get the job. Five years later, this phenomenon was regarded as little more than a dead urban legend, despite the claims of several people who claimed to have responded to the advertisement and had some interesting experiences of their own. But then it appeared once more in an online job vacancy, again for the false prophet. This time it appears to have been US-based. The website for the false prophet is still live. Don't go there. Once down the rabbit hole and within the virtual world of the game, applicants were guided through riddles to join online 3D chat room. Within one of those platforms, an individual going by the name of Nexialist guided applicants to a chapter called Nexion of a mysterious online cult. The science fiction writer A.E. van Vogt first coined the term Nexialist, an, ex- an expert in integrated science and philosophy. Nexialist can see the connections between different disciplines that others can't see and has the ability to get people to solve complex problems and work together for a common goal. So you can see this particular individual's role within the ARG as someone who connects people into the cult. This virtual cult was known as the Cult of Saturn. It's hardly an original name. and It really was just a 2012 Doomsday Cult constructed in-game for the purposes of recruiting more people into the ARG, which in turn funnelled people into the real cult. There are other real cults known as the Cult of Saturn, but they're unrelated. Incidentally, the real cult behind this was the Temple of Blood, an offshoot of the Satanic Order of Nine Angles. In their publication, The False Prophet, is real. However, as the online virtual cult began to spread, it was largely ridiculed and trolled by the online community, which resulted in the entire ARG effectively fading away and disappearing, unsurprisingly, early in the year 2013. And that's about the time that we meet a person who came from this movement and introduced the blood over intent ritual to the world. Everything I'm about to tell you is on the public record. Florida man Mark Braun is a plumber by trade and he believes that he is Satan reincarnated. Had to be the Florida man, right? Mark is well known to the Florida police, he is a diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic and has previously been charged with various crimes including domestic assault. He was the first one to do this blood over intent ritual and he is looking for 144,000 people to do it with him so that the movement will become widespread enough to reach a kind of critical mass and become a self-perpetuating movement that will spread across the entire world. It's called the 100th monkey effect, a phenomenon where a new behavioural idea is spread rapidly through consciousness from one group to the rest of the species once a critical number is reached. I should mention while it is off topic that the 100th monkey effect is a completely debunked pseudoscientific notion that grossly misrepresents a real study where monkeys were observed eating sandy sweet potatoes and washing them in water before they ate them. The popular theory goes that after a certain number of monkeys learned how to wash their potatoes before they ate them, the phenomena somehow became telepathically transmitted to a wider population of the monkeys through some kind of a hive mind mechanism, including those that lived on a separate island which had no contact with the initial group however the full findings of the study concluded that the behavior was transmitted because one of the test monkeys that had learnt to wash potatoes simply swam to the other island which is a nice little fact to leave out if you want to spin a spectacular narrative but i digress so this guy who goes by the youtube alias quasi luminous among others is a conspiracy theorist and a flat hollow earth apparently the earth is not only flat it's also hollow And he has been putting out videos about his far-right extremist beliefs for about a decade. It has been difficult to ascertain his link into organized Satanism, but despite a lack of concrete evidence, plenty of anecdotal evidence seem to support it. Perhaps the most obvious link is the obsession with conspiracy theories connected to white supremacist groups like the QAnon movement that are also intrinsically linked to Satanic cults, including the Order of the Nine Angles and the Temple of Blood. Strangely enough, the only connection I've actually seen online comes from all places, the Urban Dictionary website, where the entry for Blood Over Intent, authored by user IDOT11111, Whatever, great name. Uh, Back in May 2021, claims that Mark Braun is connected with the cult of Saturn, but the wording is ambiguous and it's unclear whether the entry is claiming that Mark Braun leads the cult of Saturn or if he came out of it. It's also unclear whether the Urban Dictionary entry is to be taken seriously at all because it could be factual. It could also be satire and it could just as likely be an artefact of an ARG in and of itself. Through a mixture of ancient Gnosticism, Egyptian writings, and of course quotes taken out of context from the Bible, all pretty standard fare for Satanism, most cults in general. Mark Braun has come to the conclusion that the Earth itself belongs to him, that reality is merely a Matrix-style illusion, remember the ARG thing, and that in the centre of this flat Earth, the Garden of Eden still exists, containing within its centre an exit hole that he intends to find and lead his followers through so that they can escape this fake reality and enter true enlightenment. According to his Mm. beliefs, only the 144,000 people who have carried out the blood-over-intent ritual will find their names written in the Book of Life because the ritual is the only proof of life. It gets your name in the book. So he was the first one to do the blood over intent ritual and continues to produce content on YouTube, whenever he's not banned from the platform, that is. Followers post their own videos and members of this community comment on one another's videos, claiming to be witnesses to them and posting comments of brotherhood, usually which involve references to blood, such as blood thick, blood family, blood brothers, etc. It's interesting to me that some of the intent statements feature references to the shedding of blood to Satan in order to, quote, uh, to atone for our sins and to cleanse our filthy souls other followers joined in some of whom have gone on to raise their own profiles and start their own groups and one of these is a man by the name of devon Magie, who's gone on to establish a cult headquarters in the us and he's actually trying to raise money to travel to the north pole where he believes he will find the garden of eden and the exit hole that leads out of this flat hollow earth
0: that all sounds legit i'm convinced where do i sign up and how do i subscribe to the newsletter <laughs>
1: Yeah, all right. Well, it should be evident enough from what I've just told you that this whole thing is completely crazy. It seems to be full of conspiracy theorists who... uh big on all the theories you hear going around everything from a flat earth to adrenochrome fueled reptilian shapeshifters they believe the debunked pseudoscientific claims of david Oates, who popularized the idea that reverse speech has some kind of magic power to reveal truth they also believe that performing the blood over intent ritual initiates you into a world of true reality that can only be seen by the initiated so that's the incentive behind people's involvement in this cult the logic is that only those who are truly alive will get their names into the book of life and posting your blood over intent video is the only acceptable proof of life the application of blood to the statement of intent or the sigil is believed to charge the sigil with energy that binds the user through their blood to the desired outcome but i don't really care if this guy or his mate is satan or not and you might think well hang on a minute that's a really big deal isn't it but i don't think so I think that the important thing for the purposes of what he's doing, whether he's crazy or not, he seems to know what's going on here. And what really matters is that he is gaining thousands of followers who are pledging allegiance to Satan with their blood. Now, the actual ritual itself is a composite of various different kinds of magic. And it's quite telling that the most vocal people coming out against blood over intent are actually witches. There are serious practitioners of occult magic who are speaking out against this practice because they see the danger in it while everybody else seems to think it's just another stupid internet craze and might as well be the ice bucket challenge or something. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that if real practicing witches are saying it's dangerous and they wouldn't be doing it, that's a red flag. So apparently witches are coming out and speaking out against blood over intent because they can see danger in not only writing out a contract between the individual and Satan or someone they believe to be Satan. And not only that, but reciting that contract as an oath and the shedding of blood as a seal of that contract, which altogether constitutes three kinds of magic binding the individual to their words. Blood magic in particular is viewed as especially powerful and incredibly strong in its power to bind the user contractually. And it should be noted that even if you don't believe that blood magic has any real power in and of itself by virtue of the nature of blood, this is not about the chemical compound that we call blood. It's not a scientific practice here. This is about doing something that you know is a deliberate act of entering into a binding contract. Similarly, when you sign a legal document, like a statement for the tax office or your home mortgage papers or any other legal document, it's not the ink in the pen or the paper upon which you write that holds the power to bind you to your words. It's the authority of the power represented by the parties to the document. The blood over intent ritual is a binding contract and just because it does not hold legal status according to human authority structures, it is no less binding. It's ironic then that the words of the oath speak of freedom and release from bondage. What is this supposed true sight that participants claim to develop after performing blood over intent? I think it's demonic influence and who or what exactly is being released from bondage? For those who have read Answers to Giant Questions, you will know that I see a link between the identity of the Satan figure in the book of Job and the Leviathan. And if that connection is solid, it means that the combined forces of evil, all the Watchers, all the demons, all of them, function as a unit. So when an allegiance is made between a human being and Satan and the pledge is made to release us all from bondage, it sounds to me like that includes all of those entities. And as I mentioned before, it doesn't matter if Mr. Mark Braun, the plumber from Florida, really is Satan or not. What matters is that the agreement is made with Satan. And of course, this is not the first time that people have reached out into the ether to try and make some kind of pact with otherworldly entities in an effort to combine heaven and earth in a way that excludes the Lord God who created both heaven and earth. I'm reminded of what happened back in 1946 when Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard, who's the founder of Scientology, performed the Babylon Working, which was a series of magical rituals designed to manifest a divine entity on Earth. Both Parsons and Hubbard were followers of famous occultist Aleister Crowley. It's widely argued that the Babylon Working may somehow be connected to the events of Roswell 1947. And the explosion in UFO phenomena that occurred afterward, culminating in the rise of science fiction that inspired writers like Eric Von Daniken, who wrote Chariots of the Gods, and Zechariah Sitchin, who wrote The Twelfth Planet. Consequently, the rise of occult-based ancient aliens theories has deceived many thousands of people around the world. And we can go back through time to, of course, the original event that inspired all of this, which is the Tower of Babel. That event which could easily be regarded as a mass-scale declaration of human intent to grasp divine power was catastrophic to the world of its day and continues to have ramifications that will never be undone as i explain in my book answers the giant questions the intent of the work at babel was to harness the power of the spirits of the nephilim and bonded them permanently in the bodies of human kings there are hints in the text of genesis 11 that this was some kind of ritual that uh, maybe that involved blood as well um they could have been involved there Do these people performing blood over intent rituals understand what they're committing themselves to? I'm not sure that they do, but it gets even worse. In every commentary, in every video, in every article that I've researched concerning blood over intent, I have not heard anyone make the connection between the ritual and the fact that it is posted on YouTube. Plenty of people have asked the question, why does the ritual need to be videotaped and posted to YouTube? Why do the followers of this cult connect with other followers and witness their videos and make comments to acknowledge the ritual? This perplexing and possibly unprecedented component of the ritual has puzzled many secular commentators. And I think the reason they haven't got it yet is simply because they lack the interpretive framework necessary to see what's going on.
0: So what is going on? What is up with all this YouTube shenanigans?
1: Well, the answer in a single word is baptism. You might be scratching your head at that. What could I possibly mean when I say that posting a video to YouTube is a baptism? Well, the ancient Israelites and Jews today still practice the rite of circumcision. And in the second temple period, we have evidence that people participated in baptism in water, a practice that continues today among Christians. Both rituals are about the same idea. This is a public show of allegiance, not only to God, but to a community that the participant is joining in a public declaration of commitment. Such a declaration of commitment must be performed publicly because it is in the observance of the ritual by the community that the ritual finds its meaning. In this way, both the initiate and all members of the community participate together in a common bond of fellowship and allegiance to a common cause. Now, do you understand why the videos have to be posted publicly and witnessed? This is the modern era equivalent of a satanic baptism. So this is why I'm concerned when I tell you that there are thousands of people posting their videos and there are even mothers doing this to their children. There are whole groups gathering and doing this together now and this movement is continuing to grow. That's why I'm treating this as a cult. It doesn't have a name, it doesn't have a headquarters, there are no church buildings, no print publications, no holy books. But what it does have is every red flag that cults are known for. The leader claims to be Satan and also God. He's worshipped by members has a large online following he claims sacred texts and other things he's seen but nobody else can see them there's the distortion of christ the distortion of scripture the creation of an us and them mentality there's fear of reprisal if you try to get out you're told there's no escape from the group it's a distortion of reality it's full of conspiracy theories and pseudoscientific claims and it's basically sci-fi blended with mysticism so what's really happening here is that people under the impression that they're applying for a job are being drawn into an alternate reality game, which requires that they join a virtual cult known as the Cult of Saturn. This cult appears to be defunct, but it has served its purpose in recruiting people who will publish things for the False Prophet magazine, which is a publication of the Temple of Blood cult. And that cult is in itself a subsidiary of the Order of Nine Angles, a left-hand path or black magic neo-Nazi Satanist cult, which explains the way that all the conspiracy theories making waves right now seem to tie in to this whole movement. My main concern now is... If this is what the powers of evil were doing a decade ago with the limited technology we had then, making thousands of people believe that reality isn't actually real, what happens when this concept gets brought into the metaverse? You might think that this whole thing is irrelevant now because Google search trends show that peak popularity of blood over intent hit back in 2017 before a sharp decline in interest, but that trend is currently turning around. As I said, it doesn't matter if they think the cult leader is Satan or not. It doesn't matter if they think the earth is flat or not. It doesn't matter if all the conspiracy theories and all the QAnon stuff that they believe is real or not. It doesn't matter if these people have no life outside of the internet as viewed from their mother's basement. The reality is they're making a very real agreement with a very real devil, and he is out for their allegiance. Because the devil knows that he cannot defeat God, but he can, sure as hell, try to minimize the Lord's victory. And every soul that he takes is one less for the kingdom of God. We need to fight back as believers in Jesus Christ and as allegiance to to him alone and we can start by making sure that we have a firm grip on truth in this world so that we don't fall prey to these kinds of schemes that take advantage of attractive conspiracy theories and intriguing mysteries. I've seen so many testimonies of people who got into this blood over intent stuff because they were drawn in after they started getting into flat earth theories. Does it make sense now why I think that biblical cosmology actually matters? We need to get this stuff right. If you haven't heard my take on biblical cosmology yet, you need to go back and listen to season one of the podcast and it'll set you straight. It's just one of many biblical foundations you need to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And of course, if you are loyal to Jesus Christ and you want to stand with him, You need to get publicly baptized into his church and make that declaration that his shed blood is sufficient to cleanse you and all who believe in him and to present you blameless before God the Father. I should also say for the record that in case you are someone or you know someone who has performed blood over intent, you're not doomed. Because you are free to change your allegiance and that's all that this is about. Your blood doesn't have magic powers. The words on the paper don't do anything special. It's all about faith and allegiance and all you have to do is declare your faithful allegiance to someone who is stronger and more powerful and holds more authority to Satan. And that of course is the Lord Jesus Christ. So you're not stuck if you got blood into blood over intent. You're not doomed. You can accept Jesus. You can declare allegiance to him. And you are set free and forgiven of all sin, including every bond you've previously made. And that's a guarantee because his faithfulness to you knows no bounds. It's not magic. It's a father's love for his child. Amen. All right, that's enough for now. It's time to go. We'll catch you next week when we discuss what the Bible says about the Garden of Eden rather than what the cults say about it. See you then.
0: Bye. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant
1: Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, Please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken. GraveForsaken.com You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeks 2 and go to GiantAnswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. I think what we really need in the world is is a transliterated Hebrew Bible. Like They should have the whole Bible laid out like that so you can read it. Um, Because once you understand what all those funny little symbols do and how you're supposed to pronounce them, it means that you can actually read in Hebrew and the sound that you get is exactly the sound of the scriptures being read to you. And I just think that's really important because there's a lot that the author of scripture does with the sound of the words, knowing that they'll be read out and, and listened mm. to. And that's the the practice because it wasn't like everybody had a Bible, you know? Yeah. yeah. Back in the day you had to go to the temple and sit there and listen. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, you had to be like super wealthy, you know, elite class or whatever to have a scroll. Yeah copy of of any scripture and you'd, you'd be lucky to have one never mind an entire yeah. old testament so yeah for most people their only exposure to scripture back in the day was listening to it mm,
0: Good
1: point. Yeah. i think especially for those um, poetic writings and you know for, for anyone mm. using um, you know i guess their creative faculties when they write uh, they They do wordplay and they they play with sound and, and word feel, and they they use words that rhyme with other words so that you get the connotation of what they're kind of saying without saying in all the subtleties oh. and and we completely miss it because we're not hearing it the way they heard it, so um yeah, that's why I like to do this uh, well it's pretty hard. Um. Cosmic giant warfare. Giant wolf saddles.
0: Giant wolf. Cosmic saddles. Giant wolf. Giant wolf. Cosmic giant warfare.
1: Oh boy. Oh, I want to hear your questions. I want to hear your giant questions. If I want to hear your giant questions. If I want to hear your giant questions.